0: Welcome to The Activist Files. My name is Ian Head. I'm a senior legal worker at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I'm here with Angelo Guisado. What's up, y'all? Angelo Guisado.
1: I'm the staff attorney here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, thank you. I guess we're going to have a little conversation, Angelo, about some new resources that we're putting out in the coming week.
1: Well, obviously, we're recording this in the weeks leading up to the 2020 election. And I think both of us can say fairly that no matter what happens, it's going to get pretty messy. And so Ian and I really just kind of wanted to chat about, you know, what are some resources that the people and communities we really care about, the movements, the activists, the organizers, what kind of tools do they have to sort of defend themselves from what's about to come?
0: Yeah, I think that sounds about right. And the two resources we're specifically going to be talking about are an update to a long-time Center for Constitutional Rights resource called If an Agent Knocks, and it hasn't been updated, I think, in about 10 years, so we're giving it a nice new version and a brand new toolkit that, Angelo, I believe you've been working on with folks at NYU. Yeah, a big shout-out
1: to the NYU Civil Rights Law Clinic led by Professor Deb Archer. We're excited to release our anti-white supremacist toolkit, strategies and solutions to the rise in this country's white nationalism, which I expect will come to a rearing head right up to during and right after the
0: election. If It's cool. Why don't we start there? And if you want to summarize how that came together and what the plan is for getting it out there and the highlight reel for that toolkit.
1: The idea for this toolkit was born out of the riot in Charlottesville in which white supremacists murdered Heather Heyer. That came in 2017. And it was really kind of, in my opinion, a turning point in the zeitgeist, right? It's like, oh my God, the Nazis are back. And this toolkit is sort of like, well, technically, the Nazis have been here all along. And the toolkit pulls from historical resources. Uh, pulling from CCR's lawsuits, some lawsuits by the Southern Poverty Law Center, some great resistance from activists and organizers, communities of color across the country, to kind of tell people, what are your options before white supremacists come to town? What are your options in the middle of a rally that starts to get violent? What are some legal strategies that are at your disposal to combat, defend yourself, and go for damages after white supremacist violence. And I'm thinking back to Charlottesville 2017. You know, obviously everyone remembers the corny white dudes with tiki torches and khakis. But since then, hundreds of people have been murdered by white supremacists across the world, especially this summer. After the murder of George Floyd, we saw at least 500 documented instances of white supremacists rally marches and protests in which violence is almost always a part. And we saw what happened with police intervention on behalf of those right-wing protesters, often insulating them from any real accountability. We here at CCR thought, what do the communities and movements that we represent really need? And so, this toolkit lays out step by step what are your options in trying to limit, move, or cancel uh, a white supremacist protest? You know, what are your options and strategies if the white supremacist rally comes with militia members who are armed to the teeth? What sort of legal strategies can you use after a protest, after the damage is done? Can you sue in federal court? You know, we pull on historical examples in which whole towns gathered truth and reconciliation commissions. I'm talking about Greensboro in the 1980s, and 1990s, you know, to sort of help communities heal and grieve after acts of racial terror. And so this toolkit, even though it was a lot of my work product and a lot of the hard work of the NYU Civil Rights Clinic, really is just a memorialization of CCR's ethics. CCR has been representing the communities who suffer from acts of racial terror since our inception. So I'm really proud to help roll this out. And I hope it's useful to the communities that are going to need it and leading up to the election.
0: Obviously, it's been, you know, especially A really scary time the last four years with Trump, but you know, obviously going back way before that, having grown up in Portland, Oregon, unfortunately, there's been a lot of neo Nazi activity there for many decades. And I'm just glad that we're putting this toolkit out and addressing a lot of ways to fight back.
1: I mean, the president himself, we all heard it. He said, Proud Boys stand back and stand by. And the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrico Tario, just today was in Miami with a shirt. That said, stand back and stand by. And the reports out of Miami were that the Proud Boys were harassing Democratic voters, and it's the type of like voter intimidation and suppression that the right-wing administration enables. And it's these sorts of actions that constitute racial terror. I mean, it, the reports were that the Proud Boys surrounded a minivan of Democratic supporters and drove them off the road, and it's like highlighted in no better place than Portland, Oregon, you know, in which uh, right-wing groups of all fabrics gathered with the tacit and sometimes explicit approval of the police to raise hell against its Black citizens and those who believe that Black lives matter. I mean, it was a city that came under federal occupation, which further allowed for a neo-Nazi demonstration and violence. And so I really hope that this toolkit can aid communities like Portland. You know, CCR brought one of the first cases using a statute out of the a Ku Klux Klan Act of, of 18671, I think. CCR brought a case in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1981 after the Ku Klux Klan shot at four senior Black citizens The middle of the street, middle of broad daylight, had burned a wooden cross right in the heart of the black community. And the CCR attorney and now professor Randy Scott McLaughlin knew at the time that the white prosecution was going to bungle the case, you know, as they had in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, where there was a very famous Nazi assassination of leftist supporters and black citizens. And instead, what Randy did in a statute called 1985 3 that allows individuals to file federal civil rights lawsuits for acts of racial violence. Um, It it hasn't been invoked very often. It was used in the lawsuit that came after Charlottesville that murdered Heather Heyer. And it's fully replete, a step-by-step basis, with what parts of the statute communities can use after incidents of racial terror.
0: So... Thinking of a concrete, horrific example here of white supremacist violence, back to Portland again, but several years ago in 2017, there was an attack on a commuter train by a Nazi who was threatening, I believe it was two Black women. Some bystanders tried to intervene. I believe both were really significantly injured. One was killed a couple of years ago on a very packed subway train, I saw two guys with Nazi tattoos. Not to get into, you know, a long specifics about different ways that one can intervene and one can't, but I often talk with friends of mine about the best ways to intervene at what moment. And I'm not sure if the toolkit gets into that level of detail or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, de-escalation tactics are really important, right? And the toolkit doesn't like go into it, but um, those resources are available, but it's a totally legitimate point. And You know, this is the sort of thing that the toolkit talks about when wondering whether to schedule a counter protest or bring counter demonstrators to a white supremacist rally. You know, some people say, try and force them into some corner of the city where they're by themselves as so to minimize damage against the city's black citizens. And that's one strategy. And the other is that, you know, the First Amendment certainly protects counter demonstrations And it may be inevitable when you're counter-protesting a white supremacist militia that they're going to start engaging in violent tactics. And there are people on our side, and I know you know what I mean when I say our side, who are down for the cause. And those are anti-fascist demonstrators who are prepared to protect Black citizens and communities of color from white supremacist violence. You know, Having gone to many of the protests myself in New York, there are people who are ready for that. And not everyone has to be the person defending. You can be observing, you can be recording. Much of what's happened in terms of political change in the past four or five years has been largely a response to social media, which has uh, played a huge role in educating the general public and the powers that be about just precisely how violent white nationalism can be, right? And we know that documented evidence of law enforcement support for a white supremacist message has made it very clear to anyone paying attention who's on which side. And so I'm not saying that everyone has to go to a protest and punch a Nazi. I'm saying that the toolkit lays out a lot of strategies if you want to, and specifically, and more importantly, if you don't want to, Maybe you're a legal observer and that's not your role to protest. Not everyone can be Bree Newsome and scale the flagpole to take down the Confederate flag. You can find your role in the toolkit. There's plenty for everyone to do in the fight against white supremacy.
0: So I want to touch on something else that I think you talked a little bit about in regards to how it's discussed in the toolkit, the collaboration, whether it's not outright collaboration, but the connection between law enforcement and the white supremacist groups. I mean, we have the head of the sergeant's union in New York, Ed Mullins, is appearing with a QAnon mug in multiple interviews, talking about his support for ICE officers to come in and make Detentions and surveil and deport people. I think you have other union officials coming out um, in support of Trump. And I mean, besides that, these guys have been paying far right wing talking points for many years. I mean, now they're really, you know, they're becoming even more forceful in their rhetoric and their support. I think
1: one of our greatest tools is video recording. You know, record the police, record the interactions. No matter what happens, the police and those on the right who amplify them are going to spin the narrative such that they castigate Antifa or leftist dissenters as those who started the fight, while I'll mention also simultaneously somehow being soy boys and too soft to fight. I think the message is that some of those who work forces are the same who burn crosses. One of the things that I've been paying attention to is local municipal law enforcement's collaboration with uh, unabashedly racist and white nationalist groups. I mean, we remember earlier in October, a militia tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And the local sheriff, who of course is in all of these right-wing Facebook groups, defended it and said, well, you know, they were potentially executing a citizen's arrest. And I'm like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the citizen's arrest was used in the 18th and 19th century to justify slave patrols. And it's crazy to me that law enforcement, those who are sworn to uphold the law, are defending just brazenly fascist actions, an attempted kidnapping and like they're trying to depose the governor. And so you're going to talk about federal law enforcement's role a little bit later. But it seems to me very clear that state and local law enforcement are certainly aligning themselves with the right, and we don't see too much pushback from many of the Democrats in power.
0: I think on a certain level, they've always aligned themselves, really, with the right, my experience. And now I think it's, it's just being highlighted even more. I remember, again, referencing Portland, but since I grew up there, that there was a higher level Portland I don't know if it was the chief or an assistant chief in the 90s who uh, was a Nazi member and had Nazi memorabilia. I think he was pushed to retire. I think the connections are long. I just think that the connections now are being more exposed. We have a uh, president who seems to want to be very blunt and honest about these kinds of connections.
1: And it's not just this president. Like, there's documented evidence that Ronald Reagan was using. White supremacist militia members to fight the Contras in Nicaragua. And they ran guns all the way down to Nicaragua. They also intervened in Honduras. And it's just like, is this shit ever going to stop? And the answer is, well, not anytime soon. And so the toolkit sort of goes by uh, instances in history in which communities were faced with the preeminent threat of white supremacist violence. And, you know, what were their options and how were they able to protect and if not recompense the communities that suffered?
0: I feel like you're totally right. Like, you know, obviously, this is the country we live in where white supremacy, you know, really reigns supreme and has since the beginning. But the kind of myths and narratives that are created over the course of decades, especially in the last several decades, that say the Republican Party isn't quite as blatantly racist as it actually is, or the Democratic Party, or like you say, like what Reagan was doing, right? And it gets kind of whitewashed away until someone, say, Trump does something. And then I think what's important is that this moment now, with all of these racists being exposed, doesn't get washed away, say, if Biden becomes president.
1: You know, and I would expect, I'll tell you two things I expect. In the lead up to the election, I would expect, as we saw today in Miami, with the Proud Boys' unrepentant intimidation, voter suppression, harassing Black and Latinx communities who are perceived to possibly be able to swing, you know, the election in Biden's favor. And what I would also expect is that, irrespective of who wins, but particularly if Biden wins, I would expect a retribution from white nationalists across the country who will see a further slip of their own power. And I think the obsession with power and nativism, particularly when combined, are often exerted as against Black and Latinx communities, particularly in violent ways. And especially if Trump wins, You know, we see our country slip further into a fascist and authoritarian regime, which will further enable these right-wing militias, right-wing white nationalist groups to brazenly and openly intimidate and commit acts of violence against Black
0: and Latinx. Yeah, exactly. And become, to some extent, more mainstreamed in the political arena. You know, all these new congressional representatives embracing QAnon and various other white supremacist talking points and narratives or whatever else it might be. It's
1: true. David Duke in the 1980s made a very conscious decision to move the Klan away from the traditional late night acts of racial terror you know, we all think about burning crosses. And he instead made a very intentional move to fill the political bench with right-wing and white nationalist advocates and adherents. And I think that that decision is still being seen today with the acceptance of right-wing conspiracies, birtherism, and we see it in national policy. I mean, we had a fucking Muslim ban crying out loud. Stephen Miller, the most preeminent white nationalist to hold a cabinet position since I can remember, is just one of the most deleterious and sycophantic advocates of white supremacy that this country's seen in a long time.
0: Another dangerous piece of it to me is, if we go to the the Michigan example, here Trump is basically endorsing, you know, these white nationalists, right-wing narrative of the governor is awful and take to the streets to push her out. Meanwhile the FBI has done an investigation and arrested several people who were plotting to kidnap her, right? And I think sometimes what's dangerous is because of how I don't know if, I don't like to use the word crazy. I feel like that's not the right word, but because of how intense things have gotten with the rhetoric and everything, now the FBI in that instance, right, is looked upon as more legitimate, more clear thinking because they sussed out this kidnapping scheme. When at the same time, we can't take our eye off the FBI as an arm of a lot of this white supremacist um, apparatus that work. right? That's so true. I mean, Department of Homeland
1: Security, responsible for the child separation policy, said in its most recent report that violent white supremacy was, and I quote, the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. And to your point, it's great that they recognize this on paper, but I'm just left thinking at all of federal law enforcement's actions, which serve to not only excuse this sort of conduct, but proliferate the same kind of terror on our communities that they purport to denounce. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the update to if an agent knocks, because as we know, post 9-11, the actions of federal law enforcement terrorized communities in ways in which they couldn't rebuild.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good bridge. I feel like it's exactly what you're saying. On paper, there might be here and there, there might be This acknowledgement of the incredible threat of white nationalist, white supremacist violence. But yet the people who end up being investigated and surveilled by federal agencies, DHS and its various offices, ICE and then the FBI are almost always black and brown communities, especially organizers and activists coming from those communities and other folks involved in protest speaking out across the country especially after big demonstrations, but in between big protests and demonstrations as well. And we saw that in CCR's FOI case we did with Color of Change a few years back, the extent of the surveillance. And so that's why and we see it now with the FBI coming and knocking on people's doors over the past several months. And that's why we, you know, it's really important that we updated this FN Agent Knox handbook, which has been around, I believe, since the 80s Was the original publication by CCR. It's been updated a few times since then. It's being updated and there will be a new version available soon. It will have additional information and examples that will hopefully be helpful to folks who might encounter federal agents, whether they be any of these agencies, you know, Border Patrol, DHS, FBI, that may literally come knocking on their doors. First, big shout out to Color of Change, Johnny Mathias. I see you. I respect the work you're doing. Shout out
1: to Brandy too. All CCR sends love. I think that, you know, a lot of people when they hear if an agent knocks, think that it's only limited to like your house. But federal enforcement will find you wherever. And I think, especially in my line of work, You know, we've been seeing well-documented accounts of federal authorities working with, for instance, border militia members, right? And so not a lot of people know this, but in the 1980s, David Duke started what was called the Klan Border Watch, in which with Border Patrol's tacit approval, the KKK turned loose border militias to round up undocumented immigrants. And this is something that they still do to this day. I wrote an article about it called Necessary to the Free State. I published that in Current Affairs. And it's just like, you know, if anyone remembers the 40-something undocumented immigrants who were rounded up by militia members at assault rifle point in 2018, it's not just that federal law enforcement will come to your door with badges. You know, they have much more Subversive means to stop you, detain you, and seize you. We're seeing it now at the border. We're seeing it at airports. We're seeing it at people's places of employment. We're seeing it at schools. Um, And so I'm really excited to see how, if an agent knocks, accounts for the increase of diversity of tactics that federal law enforcement uses. We're hearing uh, reports of people being detained at the border. In airports, in schools. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the update accounts for that.
0: Much of the update is really just if you are approached, and often that is gonna happen at your residence, at your workplace, school, like you said. And really, I'll just throw out two big, big, big rules that a lot of our listeners might already know, but I think are always good to repeat because they're a lot harder to do in the moment than they are to talk about on podcasts one is don't talk to the cops it doesn't mean you have to be completely silent but just tell them to talk to your lawyer even if you don't have a lawyer on hand at that moment they can talk to your lawyer don't answer their questions they're trained to get information out of you just keep saying you can speak with my lawyer you can speak with my attorney It might not be a situation where you're being detained. It might not be a situation where you're being arrested. It might be a situation, as has happened to simply appear, I want to hand you their business card and say, we're just, you know, we heard you might have some information on X, Y, and Z, you know, and try to be your friend. Again, you can take that business card. And if they ask you any further questions, they can talk to your attorney. So That's one really big one. And again, it's much easier to talk about right now than it is to actually do. And so I understand how hard it is in the moment to say no to a law enforcement official, no matter how they're dressed or whatever. Um, But that's really important. The other thing is to document whatever happens, right? So even if you can't document it in the moment, as soon as that engagement ends, right, let's say they, they come by your organization and they give you a business card and they say they want to talk to you and follow up with you. And then they leave document. What did they look like? What was their name? What happened? How long did that interaction take? You know, did they mention anyone else's name? What were they wearing? Every single detail is super important. It's super important for for your sake, because you're probably going to forget it, you know, as time passes. It's important, obviously, for if you need to go talk to a lawyer, which you should, for them to understand what happened. And it can be very important to your fellow activists and organizers and communities to kind of create that group documentation so everyone understands what's happening and so that they can't isolate one or two of you here and there and try to either turn people against each other or pick you off in different ways. And so everyone has a group understanding, a collective understanding of what's been happening in that moment. So I think that those two rules apply to pretty much every situation. And there is information about those and much else in the updated if an agent knocks.
1: Thanks, Ian. Obviously, two extremely important rules to remember. Easier said on a podcast than in real life. I was wondering if the manual at all discusses what to do with police officers in the event that they encounter you at a protest, for
0: instance. I'm going to be honest that the if an agent knox is, I'd say, less oriented towards at the protest moments. But this is a good question because I think it's important to understand what resources address what. And so if an agent knocks is really about encounters with federal law enforcement rather than state and local law enforcement, the kind of additional information and the detail. in if an agent knocks is much more in regards to ICE showing up at your door or FBI showing up at your office and things that might happen pursuant to that in regards to search warrants or grand juries. But I think it's a good question because there's lots of obviously other interactions with law enforcement and there are other resources out there.
1: No, it's true. In this most recent spate of protests after the murder of George Floyd, we saw a number of documented instances of federal law enforcement interrogating people about their relationship or involvement or membership in Antifa. And it's like what is this? 1919? Is this the Palmer raids again? And so I can see how the manual, if you stay quiet and document and are respectful and at a distance, you don't draw the ire of particular police officers, you may actually save yourself a hell of a time being called by the FBI, which ended up happening to a bunch of people. And they were interrogated about
0: their involvement with the anti-fascist movement. Much like the anti-white supremacist toolkit, this goes in line with, you know, decades of Central Constitutional Rights' work, representing folks targeted by these agencies, defending them, filing FOIA requests for them and with their organizations and communities, because fortunately this hasn't stopped at all, you know, and I think it's important that resources like this are out there. I want to shout out Dialla, uh Shimas who is really the co-author of this new update with me of the Miss um, Nation Knox and also many others at Center for Constitutional Rights contributing and editing and reviewing the uh, resources as well.
1: She's a genius, man. D'all released a Law Review article, I think it was last year in the book, Law Review, on your right not to snitch. And like, to me, that's one of the hottest Law Review articles hit the streets since ever, really. I think it's really important that people protect themselves with these sorts of like prophylactic measures that can just save so much of a headache or worse, especially in the lead up to the election. I think what we're seeing now is, you know, brazen adoption of anti-leftist policy and sentiment. And we're starting to see the rounding up of protesters, the filing of criminal charges, on really specious evidence, it, you know, and people like to talk about the right to free speech. And I think one of the things that Dial's Law Review article goes into is the right not to be compelled to speak. You're right not to snitch. You're right not to talk when the FBI is knocking on your door. And I know that the manual goes in further detail about that.
0: Yeah, and I think the final thing I'd say on the manual is I think a lot of the time people think that, you know, these FBI... Visits are going to end up in arrests or, you know, getting hauled off somewhere to some secret basement. And sometimes very scary things like that may happen. But the majority of this is these agencies doing intelligence gathering and intimidation and trying to break up organizing through these different methods because they know that just their appearance somewhere, just their, you know, ability to show up and say they talk to someone and, and start kind of lies and false narratives can do incredible damage to the movement. So I think it's important to be kind of prepared for those things and know how to document it, you know, to the degree that is possible, um, not let them get in there and shake things up.
1: It's true. Here, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to share an anecdote about what to do when the FBI knocks, or maybe what not to do. In the 1950s, my grandmother lived in the, in the coups uh, up in the Bronx. And um, that part of the family was a group of leftist black radicals, especially black radical women, including my grandmother, who was a fairly noteworthy communist in her day. You know, we used to have uh, Paul Robeson over for dinner. We were very involved in the Socialist Party. My grandmother was involved in the We Charge Genocide petition at the U.N. And very quickly, they got on the red list, which is not the list that you wanted to be on, right? And so my family's solution to what to do if an agent knocks was to send my mom, who was then like six or seven years old at the time, to very sweetly answer the door and say, I'm sorry, the mistress of the house isn't available at the moment. Give me one second and I'll go find her. She then closed the door, got the signal, and they got out. And the only reason that they were able to buy so much time was that they sent my mother, a child, to detain the FBI detective for just enough time for them to get out of there. The very real threat of detention, abuse, and intelligence gathering was revealed when I found my own grandma's FBI file. The thing is like 500 pages long. Uh, And it's just like she was a member of this, and a member of that, and she said this at the UN. And it's just a testament to the invasiveness and extent of the surveillance that federal law enforcement engaged in to sow discord within the socialist movements of the era, particularly the socialist movements of people of color. Obviously, we all remember Cone, Tell Pro, I don't have to go into
0: that, but that's just one quick story. That's an amazing story, and I feel like it's the perfect place to uh, tie things up. Any last words here? Shout out, you know what I mean?
1: This is a really troubling and disconcerting time for a lot of people. And, you know, Ian and I, at the Center for Constitutional Rights, really just want to give communities and movements the tools that they need to be able to protect themselves. Because, frankly, I do foresee more violence coming, and I think it'll get worse before it gets better. And Black and Latinx people in this country is, and, and Asians, too, have suffered for entirely too long um, against white nationalism against abusive tactics from federal law enforcement. We've seen the persecution of the LGBTQ movement. We've seen the demonization of those who resist fascism. And we wanted to be able to give the community something that they can use to protect themselves.